church into this building on fall break weekend. You never know what's going to happen on fall break weekend. It's good that some people stayed in town. Good to see you guys all. Um, if you're new, if this is your first Sunday with us, kind of wondering kind of where, where are we as a church? What does it look like when we open up the Bible? Where might we be uh, this morning as we do that together? Uh, we oftentimes like to go through books of the Bible or parts of books of the Bible, which doesn't mean that we never do topical sermon series. We certainly do that from time to time as we try to, to get after some of the things that, uh, that we feel as a church is necessary for us to touch on based on kind of where we are in our history, what's going on in our cultural context and backdrop. But as it stands this morning, for the better part of the past month or so, we've been in a deep dive into Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. The, the lengthiest section of uninterrupted red letter text that you will find in all of the Bible, taking up three whole chapters of Matthew's gospel account, in fact, which means that it must be pretty important what Jesus has to say here in chapters five, six, and seven of the book of Matthew. The king, as I've said from week one, coming to bring his, uh, the hope of salvation, taking his world back from us and establishing his reign over this broken humanity. The Sermon on the Mount is... is King Jesus himself essentially proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 23, leading into the Sermon on the Mount tells us the good news of the kingdom. And if you've been around for most of this series, you know that Jesus begins by describing the beauty of what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom with a pronouncement of blessings that turn the standards and values of this world upside down, what we know uh, as the Beatitudes, commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, those blessed are statements, as Jesus evidences the standards and values of the, the countercultural kingdom of heaven. Kingdom so countercultural that, that those of us who buy into it are certain to experience some level of conflict, opposition, maybe even persecution, simply for living in accordance with our citizenship. The king having come to, to secure for himself a Jeremiah 31 people, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, a new covenant people established on, on the blood that he would shed at Mount Calvary if you continue to read Matthew's gospel account to its end. God's great act of forgiveness, the, the spotless, sinless lamb sacrificed on behalf of sinners, forever satisfying the law's demands against those who would turn to him in faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of the law, so that in Christ, God's mercy and forgiveness might be ours, the kind of mercy and forgiveness that, that just might compel glad submission to the king, joyful obedience to the king, the king embedding his will deep within the hearts of his people, filling us with his spirit, so that we might sing with our hearts and our lives this song of the kingdom, so that the Sermon on the, on the Mount is, is really Jesus contrasting the, the scribes and the Pharisees and their teaching, this sort of surface level manifestation of morality with this, this going deeper into our hearts, this, this surgical nature of God in uprooting these things within us that, that don't align with citizenship in his kingdom for our joy ultimately. So that when we buck against that heart level work that Jesus wants to do in us, we actually function as the greatest enemies of our joy. Going back to last week, we, we began to tease out more and more of, of this salt and light imagery that you read about there in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, that when you read these, but I say to you statements of Jesus, what he's putting on display is this salt and light kingdom. As we 
talked about last week, a salt and light kingdom of reconciliation and God glorifying neighbor love as Jesus uproots the, the harbored anger and contempt within our, our hearts. A salt and light kingdom of purity that sees and honors the image of God in others as Jesus uproots the lustful intent in our hearts. A salt and light kingdom of sacred, holy covenant keeping love in which women and children are cared for and protected. This morning, we're, we're gonna continue to dive deeper in, into what it means that Jesus would come after our hearts, planting his flag of kingship within, bringing forth this song that sings of something far greater than the scribes and Pharisees. And we're gonna do that by going to Matthew chapter five, verses 33 through 48. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can use that Bible during your time with us and you can have that if you don't own a Bible or you have one that's difficult to track with in terms of its translation. Let me pray for us so that we can go ahead and dive in and, and get after this thing this morning. Spirit of God, would you help? Would you do what Jesus sent you to do as he ascended to the Father's right hand? Would you open our eyes to see that which you long for us to see? Would you open our ears to hear that which you long for us to hear? Would you ultimately open our hearts to receive that which you have for us this morning that you want us to receive so that we wouldn't be a people with eyes but not seeing, with ears but not hearing, with hearts but not receiving? God, I pray ultimately, as we prayed even earlier this morning before this service, that you would surgically uproot the residual, pharisaical aspects of, of, of our hearts and nature that are within us. Positionally, we have been declared citizens of your kingdom, and yet uh, you have committed yourself to completing the good work that you began in us what we refer to as the doctrine of progressive sanctification. Would you, would you do that as a result of our time in the scriptures this morning? God, I pray that we would not walk away with some better understanding of the Sermon on the Mount that we could sit in a Starbucks and have a Bible study with someone else and regurgitate that hasn't changed our own hearts. So please, God, give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach. Let it begin with me. And let it spread throughout this room and to anyone who would podcast this thing throughout the coming week. That we would walk out of here with, with a poverty of spirit, with a mourning of our own sin, with a meekness, with a hunger and thirst for righteousness that, that leads to a mercifulness toward others, a reconciliatory peacemaking with others. God, would you change us from the inside out this morning? by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in the name of the Son, our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, to the glory of the Father, amen. So as I mentioned last week, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, you're in part two of a mini-series within the series so that last week and this week, we're essentially looking at six illustrations that Jesus uses to make the same point, to address and communicate the same principle. If you weren't here last week, 
that's okay because the nature of the way Jesus does this is, is a little more categorical so that what you'll experience uh, if you weren't around a week ago uh, and you haven't podcasted last week's sermon uh, it is you'll engage something that you'll be able to track with in a sense. If you were here last week, you might go, this sounds like the same sermon twice because it kind of is. My goal actually last week was to preach through all six of these. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you paragraphs and um, in order to get you out to get lunch into your bodies on time, we couldn't pull that off. And so I had to, to separate this, but at the same time, it really is one sermon to be preached. And so as I said last week, there's a, there's a danger in taking these six paragraphs that begin with, you have heard that it was said, and turning those six paragraphs into what primarily becomes a topical sermon series. I posed the question last week, what's the, the quickest and easiest way to derail the soul-penetrating beauty of the Sermon on the Mount? It's by turning these six paragraphs into a, a disjointed half dozen sermons on anger and lust and divorce and so on so that we end up doing exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did in Jesus's day. A quote that I've shared over the last couple of Sundays, Kent Hughes says, the Pharisees' righteousness was not so great. It was merely external. It focused on the ceremonial. Its man-made rules actually were unconscious attempts to reduce the demands of the law and make it manageable. Those rules insulated them from the law's piercing heart demands. These men were also self-satisfied, he says. A Pharisee could stand on a corner, look at a publican, a tax collector, and say, I thank God I am not like that man. Jesus was demanding a deeper obedience. The Pharisee saw obedience quantitatively, obedience to myriad little laws, but Jesus saw it qualitatively. The righteousness, he says, that Christ demands is supremely radical. It is immeasurably higher than the rabbi's concept of righteousness. Jesus closes this whole section, he says, by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What, what I don't wanna do this morning nor, nor through any part of this sermon series, is to, to rob us of the soul-penetrating power of Jesus' words by giving us myriad little laws, to use Hughes' language there, regarding lust and anger and so on, so that we, we end up walking away with all of the ammunition that we need to insulate ourselves from the heart-piercing demands of the king, King Jesus, just like the scribes and Pharisees, which I mentioned last week is gonna drive you absolutely bonkers if you're like me and you just wanna know what to do and not to do. Because what that means is my goal is not to, to then provide us with any illustrations and examples other than what Jesus gives us. I'm gonna try really hard not to do that this morning, just like I attempted to do last week. So it's not to lose the essence of the greater point that Jesus is looking to make. In other words, I, I don't want us to miss the point by making it uh, too specifically about any one of the points here in these six paragraphs by black and whiting the topics of anger and lust, etc., so that we, we miss the soul-penetrating beauty of what Jesus is doing here. As I mentioned last Sunday, this is not some veiled attempt to sweep difficult topics under the rug. And so I showed this slide a week ago. You can go back and podcast sermons from the past that get after some of the topics that are uh, brought up in these six paragraphs. But I say to you, uh, as Jesus gets after it in the Sermon on the Mount, we've done uh, sermons on marriage, divorce, singleness, and sex, going back to the First Corinthians Beautiful Mess series, chapter seven, we dealt with some of that stuff. Uh, we, I preached Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 through 26 before 
on, on the topic of anger in the I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That series, along with uh, loving your enemies and waging war on sin, that language going back to last week of plucking your eye out or cutting your hand off as it pertains to issues of lust. And then there was Hebrews 13 in the Jesus is Greater series, Jesus, the sacrifice empowering savior, where we talked about some of the implications of what it means to live out the Christian life in light of the gospel. So my aim this morning is ultimately not to comprehensively address any one of the subject matters Jesus speaks to any more than that was Jesus's aim to do that. He clearly doesn't unpack and tease out all of the implications of heart anger or lustful intent or divorce as a topic or this morning oaths and retaliation and and enemy love. Rather, as I mentioned last week, my aim is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom ruled by a king who would come after our hearts, bringing us to our knees in this posture of spiritual poverty that he might bring forth this song that, that sings to the praise of his glorious grace. Beginning in verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Remember, Jesus is presenting us with six illustrations of the one and same truth. He, he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a kingdom righteousness that works it, it, itself out from the inside, exposing our heart level intentions and motivations so that we might walk more fully in God's grace and power, more deeply fulfilling this kingdom ethic of love, love for God and love for neighbor so that the outworking of citizenship in the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming here is not simply prohibition. It's not just about steering clear of the wrong things, but it's about a glad submission, a growing hunger and thirst for the king and those things that embody his kingdom. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Again, Jesus isn't correcting the teaching of, of, of the Old Testament as though the Mosaic covenant had no concern with the inner disposition of a person. It most certainly did. He's correcting the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees who had established this code of morals and, and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures and, and it managed to miss the law's heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules. Jesus is declaring what life in the kingdom looks like as we walk in the fullness of what it means to be this Jeremiah 31 people of God. It's one thing to to perform to the Lord what you have sworn, keeping your vow. It's an altogether different thing to have the kind of integrity that requires no oath. The kind of integrity that says what it means and means what it says. Then in the same way that divorce had gotten out of hand, so lying had gotten out of hand. The, the swearing of oaths had turned into this system of deception and, and manipulation so that it had become standard practice to, to convince others that you were telling the truth while lying. How so, you might ask? By swearing on the basis of some person or object, leaving God's name out of the equation, believing that that meant that the oath wasn't binding. In the words of one scholar, like a culture of children with their fingers crossed behind their backs. 
using words to hide from and, and deceive one another. The age of spin, you might say, which, by the way, has been every age since the fall of man. That's not new to the 21st century. And Jesus calls it evil. Not simply because it fails to recognize that God is, is behind everything so that there's nothing in creation that we could possibly swear by that doesn't have to do with God. But also because it images the very father of lies, the devil himself, the crafty serpent in the garden. So we live in ways that are not truthful with each other as false representations of the truth and, and of ourselves. I mean, the very fact that that oaths exist is a declaration, is it not, that human beings are liars so that we sense the need to put weight behind our words that they might all the more be both believable and believed. Jesus is getting after the deep root issues in us that destroy our relationships, exposing the tensions and motivations of our hearts, the heart-motivated lies and, and manipulation that condemns us apart from him, just like he did with anger and lust and divorce. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Because he's not just exposing the lies within, but calling for a, a radical honesty, the abandoning of smoke screens, you might say, so that Jesus' kingdom is not simply about uprooting lies and empty promises, it's a kingdom of God-glorifying neighbor love. It's a salt and light kingdom, the, a love that honors others by saying what we mean and meaning what we say, a love that fosters unity, which is built on the foundation of mutual trust, without which unity could never really be established, not a true unity. He goes on to say, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The, the ancient Hebrews adhered to what's known as the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. The Old Testament language of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When most of us hear that language, we, we think it to be harsh, to be cold and calculated, do we not? I mean, it even sounds better with like a, a, a pirate accent behind it, an eye for an eye, like, you know, that kind of, like there's something angry about it. When in reality, in actuality, it was a gracious restraining mechanism meant to subdue vindictiveness and retaliation. If you think about it, how many of us have thought to ourselves, parents in the room, if anyone were ever to touch my kid, I'd kill him. A touch for a death. What the Lex Talionis was, was looking to do was to restrain the response of murder in, in situations like that, the, the over-response. It was, it was a declaration of, of justice. It was the scribes and Pharisees who had turned it into this legalistic weapon of vindication. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Unless we think that Jesus is calling us to a blanket pacifism, it's mind-blowing to me to read commentary after commentary after commentary and, and to see commentators and scholars feeling this need to address all of the loopholes and questions regarding pacifism versus war. 
When the reality is that's what the scribe and Pharisee part of our heart wants to do. Just like with anger, to, to talk about, well, what about righteous anger, Jesus? This is not a call to blanket pacifism. Jesus gives us four examples of what it means to not resist the one who is evil, verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It's the language not of attack, but rather insult, the open-handed backslap of disgrace and disrespect that comes with being a citizen in Jesus's good kingdom. Jesus is calling us not to do what's well within our rights to do, but rather to bear the insult, which had, the only way to do that is, is that's birthed out of a security in our citizen of the kingdom identity, right? It's possible to, to live in a, accordance with the principle of an eye for an eye while still making our rights the basis of our relationships with other people. What Jesus is saying goes much deeper, does it not? It requires a transformation of the heart, no longer acting on the basis of our rights, what people owe us, but rather abounding in mercy and grace so that we might win others to the king. They might see that salt and light display of the beauty of the upside down kingdom of heaven, a kingdom in which love is the true fulfillment of the law. The second example of what it means to not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In Jesus's day, as crazy as this may sound, a person could sue the very shirt off of another person's back. A person's cloak, however, was a very different manner. Uh, matter. Based on the, the living conditions of, of first century Palestine, taking a person's cloak, their outer robe was considered inhumane. So that even if you did manage to gain possession of another person's cloak, you had to return it by sundown so that the person you took it from could use it to keep themselves warm at night. What Jesus is calling for is incredibly radical, namely giving a person something that they legally can't take from you in the midst of intense persecution, that those doing the intense persecuting might see something of the salt and light kingdom and its king. Third example of what it means not to resist the one who is evil. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Roman officials in Jesus's day could, could command a Jewish person to carry a heavy load for them, and the Jewish person had no choice, no matter what they were doing at the time of the command. Just walk up, tap them on the back, and say, you're carrying this, and you have to drop everything that you're doing and obey that command. This was something that Jesus' followers most certainly would have experienced, simply for living in accordance with their citizenship. Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross, considered to be an example according to many. Again, Jesus is calling for something incredibly radical, namely a, a kingdom-minded, servant-hearted joy in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, that asks of the very ones opposing us, mistreating us, can I keep carrying this heavy load for you? Would you allow me to do that? The kind of response, if you think about church history, that caused Christianity to spread like wildfire in the first few centuries following Jesus' death and resurrection. The fourth example of what it means to not resist the one who is evil. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you, which again is not a, a broad brushstroke command regarding generosity. The, the primary application point of this is not having to do with people with signs standing on the side of the interstate. 
but rather a command to those experiencing persecution. In Luke's gospel account, Luke 6, 35, Jesus talks about loving our enemies, those persecuting us, by lending to them while expecting nothing in return. Apparently, there were those who, who sought to persecute Christians by taking advantage of their generosity, which Jesus sees as another opportunity to put the kingdom ethic of love on display. So that the, the common theme in all of these examples is that of setting fairness aside, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, knowing that fairness should have, been, uh, should have crushed us under the weight of God's wrath, should it not? It's crazy. When you think about these four examples and you think of the life of Jesus, he stood before Caiaphas, the high, high priest, in a courtroom and received the backslap of insult. He was stripped of his robe, and left naked and bare. He carried a splintered Roman wooden cross up the hill of Golgotha. And he looked at a beggar to his side who asked for the kingdom and he gave it to him. It's a picture of the gospel. How gloriously unfair that sinners like you and me could be a part of Jesus' good kingdom. How gloriously unfair that Jesus would bear our sin and gift us his righteousness. John Stott, very famous quote from the cross of Christ says, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself, he says, against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. What, like, unbelievable grace, right? The kind of grace that would get into our hearts and say, let's talk about that fairness and rights thing going on within you. As we soak in the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we find the grace and power to lay down our rights so that we might win others even when, and particularly when, it goes against all laws of fairness. Jesus goes on to say, as a final illustration of the same principle he's been getting after now for six paragraphs, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here we get the clearest indication that Jesus is not simply addressing the teachings of the Old Testament. We know that because there's no explicit command to hate your enemy in the law of Moses. You won't find it. Which maybe helps to explain why these pronouncements begin not with it is written, but rather you have heard that it was said. Again, Jesus is correcting the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. In this case, a restricted love reserved only for fellow Israelites. Again, Jesus is calling for something incredibly radical here, a, a completely supernatural love without limits. Of the four Greek words for love, C.S. Lewis in one of his writings teases this out really well. 
Of the four Greek words for love, Jesus is not commanding storge, which is natural affection like that of a parent for a child, nor is he commanding philia, brotherly love, a love between friends. He's not commanding eros, romantic love either. Jesus is commanding agape, unconditional love extended without merit regardless of circumstance. What most of us would consider to be the most unnatural form of love that exists. Right? It's natural to love those who love us, is it not? That's easy. To bless those who bless us, that's lex talionis. That's eye for an eye stuff, right? Jesus calls his people to love their enemies, to pray for those who oppose them, who mistreat them, who persecute them in word and action. As children who reflect the disposition of our Father in heaven, Jesus says, who hates sin and yet makes the sun rise on both the evil and on the good, sending rain on both the just and on the unjust. If our Father in heaven pours out the blessings of his common grace on all, so should we, Jesus says, his sons and daughters be a blessing to all. It doesn't require any sort of heart transformation, does it, to, to love those who love us and are like us. Even the, Jesus says even the extorting tax collectors were good for that. Verse 46. What Jesus is calling for is completely unnatural and supremely radical. Again, as he has been for six paragraphs now. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The very thing, again, that Jesus himself would go on to do in praying for his enemies as he hung on a Roman splintered wooden cross, crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Doesn't get much more antithetical to the kingdom of this world than that, does it? Revealing the mercy and grace of God who died for us while we were still sinners, enemies of the cross of Christ, participants in his wounds. Verse 48, Jesus closes out this section you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. A phrase that, that many scholars believe is not only linked with this section on enemy love, but, but rather everything that follows verse 20. Going back to that verse, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This week I came across a, a C.S. Lewis quote that was new to me, shocking as that may be. In a Christian magazine in the 1950s, an Anglican priest by the name of Dr. Norman Pettinger criticized Lewis, accusing him of not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount. Lewis's response in the typical C.S. Lewis wit, this is what he said. As to, quote, caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if Caring for here means liking or enjoying. I suppose no one, quote, cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition, he says, than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. And anyone who's been around for much of this series says, hallelujah, amen. Right, going back to last week, it's far easier to focus our attention primarily on righteous anger as an acceptable form of anger, an exception clause, rather than addressing the harbored anger and, and contempt in our own hearts. 
It's far easier to focus on whether it's the, the first glance or the second glance at an attractive person that qualifies as lustful intent rather than addressing the dangers of heart adultery in, in our own lives. It's much easier to focus on the exception clauses regarding divorce rather than addressing the questions regarding covenant fidelity in our own hearts and lives. As it pertains to this morning's passage, it's much easier to make the focus of the section on oaths about swear words and courtroom oath-taking and what's okay and what's not rather than addressing the propensity to lie and manipulate others in our own hearts. Why do I, why do I come up with a, a manipulative version of why I was late to work? Why does my heart do that? It's much easier to turn the section on retaliation into a conversation about pacifism and, and issues and, and, and um, moments of self-defense and what's okay and, and what's not rather than addressing our willingness to set fairness aside and lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. It's much easier to to turn the section on loving our enemies into a conversation about the imprecatory Psalms of the Old Testament. And what about those holy war passages? Rather than addressing our own hearts when it comes to loving those who aren't like us and who mistreat us. When we do that, we've entered into the thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees. We make it primarily about those things. It's not to say that those things aren't part of the Christian conversation, But when we take the Sermon on the Mount and we make it primarily about those things, we've done exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Jesus is getting after the the deep root issues in us that destroy our relationships with God and others, exposing the intentions of our hearts, the motivations of our hearts. He loves us too much to do anything less than bring us to our knees in poverty of spirit so that we might be astonished by his overwhelming grace. That, that heaven's king would, would satisfy the heart-piercing demands of the law on behalf of sinners like you and me, filling us with his spirit so that we might sing this song of the kingdom with our hearts and our lives. To bring the, the last two weeks together, this is the song of the kingdom according to Jesus that we've been looking at for the last two weeks, these six paragraphs. It's a salt and light kingdom of reconciliation the kingdom of God-glorifying neighbor love. That's the song of the kingdom. It's a salt and light kingdom of purity that sees and honors God's image in other people. That's the song of the kingdom. It's a salt and light kingdom of sacred, holy, inviolable, covenant-keeping love in which women and children are cared for and protected. That's the song of the kingdom. It's a salt and light kingdom of radical honesty and integrity in which unity is established on the foundation of trust. That's the song of the kingdom. It's a salt and light kingdom of confident humility and servant-hearted joy in the midst of opposition and persecution that wins its very persecutors over to the king. That's the song of the kingdom. It's a salt and light kingdom of supernatural love without limits, the kind of love that would go so far as to plead with God on behalf of an enemy. That's the song of the kingdom. As I said last week, that God would be merciful to me, a sinner, that I could be part of a kingdom like that. It's all of grace. God's greatest act of agape love in turning me, an enemy, into his friend. Do you believe that? Is is your heart soaking in that, that glorious, beautiful reality of the gospel that we enemies of God have been made friends of God and as friends, 
Jesus wants to transform us from the inside out to conform us to his very image, to, to get our song more on pitch with the song of the kingdom. Do you see how what Jesus is doing goes so much further than just prohibition? I don't know what you heard along the way when you've heard sermons on Matthew chapters five, verses seven. As a kid growing up, all I heard was prohibitory language. Don't do this. Not, not only don't murder, but don't be angry either. That's, that's Jesus' kingdom. Don't, you know, not only don't commit adultery, the act, but also don't look at those teenage girls lustfully. That's, that's the kingdom. And that's, that's true. But do you see how Jesus goes further? How he's tying in that salt and light language with these six paragraphs to say, this is what salt and light looks like. This is what the kingdom looks like, a more beautiful expression than the kingdom of this world. So that there's a song that's being born out of this sermon that Jesus is preaching. And it's a beautiful song. So that it's not just about steering clear of the bad things. But it's about bending our knee in submission to this king and saying, yes, more of your kingdom, which is glorious and beautiful and right and true which is really just practice for eternity where we will come together in Jesus' kingdom forever, singing that song perfectly in our glorified state. In a moment, we get the opportunity to worship this king, to respond to these red letter words through song as we sing to King Jesus, as we sing to the glory of the Father, as we sing of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who works in us to, to bring our lives more on pitch with this song, with this kingdom song, we get to sing to this God as an act, a collective act of glad submission. We get to come and receive communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you as we take the, broken, uh, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood, the opportunity to just pause for a second and think in light of this morning's sermon, this morning's passage, if you can just get this picture of Jesus in your mind and think of the radical integrity and honesty with which he spoke, the fact that you can look at these red letter words and know that they're true. Think of Jesus being back slapped, the backhanded slap of insult in the courtroom before the high priest Caiaphas, stripped of his robe, walking up the hill of Golgotha, forgiving those who would beg him for the kingdom. Think of Jesus praying for you on the cross that he would turn enemies into his friends. As we come and receive communion this morning, I, I pray that those images just fill your mind and flood your mind as we're reminded that we could not bend our knee in glad submission to Jesus as king apart from Jesus as savior, from his redeeming work. So we have an opportunity to remember and celebrate his forgiveness.